just feel like more and more, I'm really interested in creating a sense in my work as a poet that it's like meaning itself. It's like experience itself. It's like being enacted in the moment. And that's one way of approaching it is crafting a poem so that the poem itself feels like it's being made in the moment and the meanings are being come to for the poet and the reader at once. We're back with Carrie Fountain. So you asked me before we broke, what was different about God of Nothingness, The Life, and Goldenrod from other poems that I'd read. I would say that my favorite poet is Gerard Manley Hopkins, or maybe Ogden Nash. I have their work memorized. I read their stuff all the time. Hopkins is, he's a fairly traditional poet today. I think in the time he was writing kind of revolutionary stuff, but today it's poetry. Some of it rhymes. It's in verse. Stanzas and sentences are the same thing. That's what it is. Ogden Nash is just very silly and deep and heavy, but also intentionally funny. But the thing that's different about y'all's poetry is just looking at it visually. The first thing that I notice is the line breaks and where you break lines, not necessarily being the place that you break sentences, gives every sentence more than one meaning. It almost seems like an obvious thing that people should have been doing for thousands of years, but it was new to me. And I don't know if this started in the 50s, or if it started with you guys or what, but a lot of your poems and the three of you are laid out in couplets or triplets that have line breaks in places that you would not expect them that give the lines different meanings, which I think is really amazing. The other thing is that I thought of modern poetry as being either slam type poetry, or poetry that is so intellectual and challenging as to be inaccessible to the average reader. You, the three of you, are extremely readable. They're poems in the traditional Gerard Manley Hopkins sense where you can read them and they're beautiful and they have a beauty and a prosody to them regardless of the content. And the content is also deep and heavy. The other thing that's the same about the three of you is the content is also incredibly personal. So I found all of that fascinating and I didn't know that that existed until October. I think that is a very typical experience of poetry. Some of the poets that many Americans, perhaps maybe our generation or older, like Robert Frost or Hopkins or Auden or Yeats. So there's those voices and then the chasm perhaps between what you called slam poetry and then using language in a way that feels like really impenetrable. I think that is the experience of most people when they approach poetry. So poetry can feel really scary to people. And understandably, because our experiences with poetry have perhaps not been the best. And then, of course, we have to take tests on them. Frost, I feel, is devastatingly heavy. I love his stuff. It is beautiful, but it's so replete with depth. I just always feel like I'm missing something when I read Frost. Even if I feel like I get it, I feel like I'm still missing something. I can see what you're saying. Robert Frost wrote thousands upon thousands of poems. And I obviously am not a Frost scholar, but my experience of, you know, like a poem like Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, to me feels like an emotional depth, a metaphorical depth that is so strong as to have the same effect on me emotionally that a Disney movie has on me. 
at the end of the movie, I'm like crying my eyes out, but I'm so pissed off and I'm like so wrapped up and I'm like, God damn it, they got me again, you know? So that's very interesting. But I love that you read across disciplines, yes? Do you mostly talk about books of fiction or books of nonfiction? So the format of the podcast is I pick the person, the person picks the book. So it's always different. Wait, so now are you going to contact Mark Wunderlich next? <laughs> yeah, totally. He's a Rilke scholar, I believe. So he might come back with some Rilke. So I was actually going to comment because in the beginnings of both of your books, you have quotations by Rilke, who is someone I'm not familiar with. I'm aware of her. Right. So this is one of the deceiving things is that the first name is Maria, but it's actually a man. I, you know, I kind of felt like that was going to be the case, but... I don't really know anything about Rilke. I know that modern contemporary poets are really into this person. When I was writing this book, when I was coming to put it together into a collection, I was just happened to be reading through a selected Rilke and came across the Rilke quote from my book. The quote is, but somewhere there is an ancient enmity between our daily life and the great work. Help me in saying it to understand it. I just feel like Rilke is a poet who just kind of uh, over and over again is gifted the ability to state things that are so difficult to articulate. He kind of articulates the inarticulatable in that quote. And I really love the quote that Mark Wunderlich has at the beginning. Strange not to go on wishing one's wishes Strange to see what was once so connected drifting in space. Anyway, you got like snagged on poets. I just love that. It's a gift of coincidence to some who are not familiar with poetry to kind of get snagged on it and then realize like, oh my God, there's so many voices in poetry right now. There's more poetry being published. There are more voices that we have access to and who have access to publication. It's just such an exciting time in poetry right now. You can kind of find not just anything, you can find everything in poetry. I say this all the time in relation to music when I talk about music, but I think it's really true about literature and poetry, which is that there is so much out there right now that you will definitely die without having heard or read something that you would have absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. which is kind of depressing, but also amazing that there's more out there that you would absolutely love and resonate with than you could possibly even find. So the life, I already mentioned that Maggie Smith said that the spirit asks has the best ending of any poem ever. And I just want to restate that because I think that's pretty cool. And I also agreed. I love that poem. I love the way you ended this book. I will link to the episode in the description for the podcast listeners to the Maggie Smith episode where you can hear us talk about Carrie's book. But now we're going to ask Carrie Fountain some questions about her own book. So one thing I'm always fascinated by is how long have you been working on these poems? Like you don't just sit down and write a book of poetry the way you sit down and write a novel, right? This is like years of accumulated poems that are pulled from different places. Or did you sit down to write this collection? No, no. That sounds like hell on earth to sit down and like, yeah, I'm going to write a poetry collection. There's no doubt in my mind that there are probably many, many poets who work like that. I wish I could work like that. It's much less linear. I don't even feel like I think about a collection while I'm writing individual poems. I think that because now I have 
written in other disciplines, my experience of writing poetry has continued to change in the face of writing other things. And it continues to become more and more to me like a practice that is different than any other kind of writing that I do. And it's very much a practice that feels more like a way of practicing mindfulness, I guess I would say it that way, or I'm not a religious person, but I've always longed to be a religious person. And it feels like that kind of a practice to me. I can look at other writing and go like, oh, I need to keep working on that project, or I need to go back through those notes and go back to that draft on that piece that I'm working on, narrative or essay or whatever. But my experience of writing poems, I try to do it every day or I wouldn't do it. So every morning I try to write a poem and it's very low stakes. Most of them are nothing. I've recently in the last year or so have moved from doing it on my computer to doing it in a notebook, which has made a big difference, I think. And then just kind of having the faith that you write these little poems every day and eventually something kind of you like you get a like, ooh, I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to go back to that one. That one's going to become something. And then, you know, eventually you go back and you grow it and it changes and it changes. Very often I get into these arguments arguments, but these like power struggles where I'm trying to make the poem do something. And the poem is like, just take your hands off the wheel for two seconds and I will show you where we're supposed to be going. So it's such a different experience than writing anything else. But also necessarily it is, and I can say this because now this book has been out for a year, so it is even wider a distance But, you know, you publish a book of poems and then those poems that you were working on are done and they're out of your life. I'm just like sitting here with, oh, here's all these poems that I've been writing in the morning and none of them are at a place where I want to even go back to working at them. And my husband, of course, has now we've been together for 20 years. So he understands when I say like, I don't know, I don't think I'll ever write another poem again. It's like funny to him because I always come to him with this very heavy, like, no, really, this is it. Like, I don't think I'll write another poem again. And he's like, oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, that's crazy because that's what you said the last time you finished a book of poems. I think it's a necessary thing that it's just not something you can I'm going to take a weekend. I'm going to go lock myself in a hotel room and I'm going to write a book of poems. You know, it would just (laughs) never work where I could be like, okay, I need to finish this draft of a novel. I'm going to say, I don't care what it looks like or how bad it is, but I just need to get to the end of the story. I need to get to the end where these characters are at the very end. And I'm going to work and work and work and work. And I'll just get there and then I'll go back and I'll get notes and blah, 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 blah. It's just a totally different kind of writing. But it is one that is like, I really wish a poem would just drop from the sky into my lap right now. I would just give anything for that because I end up feeling like, oh, what am I even doing? If I'm never going to write a poem again, then maybe I should stop calling myself a poet, it immediately starts this downward spiral. I don't know if this happens to other poets. I would really like to know if this happens to other poets. Would you like to know if this happens to musicians? Does it happen to musicians? Yes. It's every project I do. I'm just like, I think this is probably the last one. Every single one. And I go through the same thing with my wife. And it's for some reason, usually about this time of year where I feel like my career is just not working out and everything's going horribly. And then she'll be like, oh, we just got our 1099s. And you've been paid by like every major entertainment company in the world this year. If you're doing something right. I think poetry and music are very related 
because they're not immediately understood. I'm sure that there's a process for creating poetry, but the process seems to be for you, you write poetry every day and every once in a while, there's a seed of an idea that you can work out. And music, my career is, I have to be good enough that on my worst day, I can write a passably good piece of music. And sometimes I write an inspired piece of music. So my wife is also a composer. She goes through the exact same thing. Oh, God. Yes. My husband is also a writer. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. So we have this in common that we're both married to people who share our profession. What is it like for you and your husband? He is a playwright. He's a playwright and a novelist. He also is in screenwriting as well. He has a couple of projects going on that are film projects. Do you guys share work with each other? Yeah, he's always my first reader. And I think I'm probably always one of his first readers. He's an amazing reader. He's an amazing writer as well. He's really amazing. I tend not to think that writing is a competitive thing to begin with, but we are not writing in the same vein. Stylistically, we've been more and more kind of writing in the same disciplines, but stylistically, we are vastly different. I think that is something that we benefit from, both because we can appreciate each other's work in a way that doesn't feel like threatening or, you know, whatever. People ask a lot of like, oh, is it really hard to be with another writer? And I don't have any other experience, but I also cannot imagine being married to someone who comes home from their job in finance or something. What did you do all day? <laughs> I'd be like, oh, you God, why did you ask me that question? I totally agree. I think we both married well, it sounds like. I want you to read a poem from the life. You want to tell me which poem to read? I'll read whatever. All right. I think the one that I really want you to read is self-help. Oh, wow. Interesting. That was the last poem that I wrote for this book. I really love this poem. Self-help. Your thoughts and feelings are natural. They're like air. And like air, you can improve or degrade them, but you cannot make them. You do not make the air. Congratulations, you can say every morning to your thoughts and feelings. You made it. You survived the night. You're back. Your poems are not your work. Poems are art, and art is not work, not exactly. Though art is made of work. Poems are made of work. Once I stopped the work. And that's when and how I learned about the work. The work is nothing like air. It's more like looking up now to see my son's small shoulder and his arm slid palm up under the pillow, his ear pushed out from under his wild hair. It's like this, like the way I'm riding quietly at my chair in the dark this morning, drinking coffee I make in my closet, watching him sleep in my bed, which he came into last night, guided as he is after 8 p.m., entirely by his fears, especially his fear of waking in the night to find himself alone. A fear I read about last night while he slept beside me, a fear experts say I should accept rather than encourage to go away. No one ever bootstrapped their way out of fear, one article said, and it struck me as so true and so obvious that I had to wait a while for the wave of shame to wash over me, for of course I'd been pushing hard for independence. I've read enough advice from experts to have learned one thing, that you have to let the shame come. Parenting is full of shame and the recognition of shame, 
and the legacy of shame. And you have to let it come and wash over you without trying to stop it. I read that the best thing to do is accept your child's fear, accept it all, be there with him in it, share it, tend to it like you would a minor wound. People always have advice, but hardly any people are experts. And so today we'll be changing gears. From now on, we're going to be there with him in his fear, which is work. Now it's later and both kids are up and my son is long gone, the blankets tossed, the sun up, his sister up, his fears burned off like fog, and he is making an absurd amount of noise in the living room, while his sister, who is too old to do so, is lying on the floor trying to engage me in an argument about whether this room or her room is the biggest carpeted room in the house. I'm working, baby, I tell her. Though by now, I've long lost the thread of this work, and she gets up reluctantly and skulks out of the room. For a while, I listen to the two of them talking down the hall. Do you like this little place I made for my Tamagotchi? And so what? Even though the airport isn't moving, it gives me motion sickness. And there's something I always say, and that is McDonald's makes me McDonald's sick. Congratulations, I say to myself right here, right now on this page in this moment. Yeah, you're really good. You could probably become a cat hairstylist. You made it. The real key quote you have in the beginning about the enmity between your daily life and the great work, I just think is so present in that poem. And I love the time of it. Like I can see you writing it. I love the fact that it breaks up when you're writing it and that we're like listening to you write the poem, which is a really amazing device. The thing I love about it is just as a person who has made art is that it feels like this is just what you wrote. You just wrote this exactly like it is. And then that was the finished thing. But I know that it's a poem and you worked on it and you sculpted it. But it's amazing that you managed to keep that feeling of urgency of like, okay, I stopped here. I started here. I was interrupted here. I keep going here. I was interrupted by my son. Let me talk about how it feels to be interrupted by my son. I just love that. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things I'm like really interested in. But the idea of intimacy in a poem and writing in different disciplines. And I just feel like more and more, I'm really interested in creating a sense in my work as a poet that it's like meaning itself. It's like experience itself. It's like being enacted in the moment. And that's one way of approaching it is crafting a poem so that the poem itself feels like it's being made in the moment and the meanings are being come to for the poet and the reader at once. I love reading poems like that, just where you really feel like you're in someone's brain and you see the way they think. And there's something so meaningful in that. I really love reading poetry like that. That's what I loved about your poem, Self-Help. That's what I loved about your book. That's also what I loved about Mark Wunderlich's book. And Carrie Fountain, I have to let you go, but there's two more questions I have to ask you. Okay. First of all, tell us about your upcoming children's book and can we pre-order it yet? Oh my God, thank you for asking about my bookie wookie. <laughs> I call it my bookie wookie. I'm so excited and thrilled about this book. I really am. It's called The Poem Forest. Poet W.S. Merwin and the Palm Tree Forest He Grew from Scratch. It's about the poet W.S. Merwin and how he moved to Hawaii, bought this really sickly 
plot of land that had been kind of ruined by in failed industrial agriculture. And everybody was telling him nothing would grow there. And he, over the course of 45 years, much of it with his wife, Paula, grew one of the world's most comprehensive palm tree forests on the planet. It's a true story. He sadly passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 93. He lived a very long life. I don't know that we would get much argument from saying, you know, when he was alive, he was probably the most significant American poet living at that time. I mean, he's really, really an amazing and important poet. And then his daily work as an ecologist and poet, just really inspiring. It's just a perfect story for kids. And I feel really lucky, really lucky to be able to be the person this story came through because people need to know about him. Planting a tree is really easy. It is really easy. And he did it every day. And I think that that's kind of something that's very inspiring to me. It comes out in September. It was supposed to come out in March, I believe. The children's book industry has been deeply affected by the supply chain issues. And so September, it got moved to September, but that's also really wonderful because September is the month of W.S. Merwin's birthday would have been his 95th birthday this year. So that book is very exciting. It comes out September 22nd. And yes, it is available for pre-order. So pre-order it. (laughs) This is the final question we ask everybody. Recommend two books to our audience. Well, I just finished reading this book. It's not out yet. It's forthcoming. I believe that you pronounce her first name, Zena Hashem Beck. This book is called O, and it's a collection of poems. This is a book of poems that people who are not super feeling like a part of the poetry reading community would just devour because it's amazing and dynamic and changing and multitudinous. Another book off the top of my head, the best book is War and Peace by Tolstoy. It's a big one, but that's an amazing book. But yes, this forthcoming book of poems and the greatest, longest, most amazing book ever written. First of all, I think that Middlemarch is the best book, but I have not yet read War and Peace. I've read many Russians. I've read a lot of Tolstoy, but I have not yet read War and Peace because no one's picked it for the podcast yet. So maybe we'll have to do another episode. Thank you so much for your time. This was so good. It was wonderful. It was so nice to meet you. Bye. My guest next week is author Mark Schatzker, who wrote one of my favorite books ever, The Dorito Effect, and another of my favorite books ever, The End of Craving. He and I are going to talk next week about Charles Pontus's Western classic, True Grit. Thank you so much for listening. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor. You can reach us at Book Society Pod on Instagram, also BookSocietyPod at gmail.com if you want to send a direct email. Santiago Ramones is the co-producer and also definitely edits the show. He has his own podcast called Bit Depth. It's really good. If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. You want to tell me which poem to read? I'll read whatever. I'm like a DJ on the radio. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Taking requests. request.